Hey friends, we are doing another rerun episode here on why is everyone yelling uh, as we get through these two weeks of the holiday season. I decided to give myself and my editor and producer Emma a little break. And so we are replaying some of our favorite episodes here on the podcast. So if you're new here, you probably haven't heard these yet. Uh, today's episode, we are replaying episode 49 with Callie Warner, who is a family and behavioral therapist. I'm going to play the entire intro here as well so you can hear her introduction. Uh, but I just want to say happy holidays, Merry Christmas. I hope you are enjoying this time. And uh, we will see you with fresh new episodes in January. This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you're here with us today. This is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids in any way. And I hope that each episode brings a little something that helps you out, makes you feel supported, makes you laugh, makes you feel like you're not so alone because this is really hard and raising kids. And I started this podcast because, you know, as my kids got older, I had more and more questions. I didn't read any books or do any research when I had kids. And then as we got past those toddler years, I started getting real curious about a lot of things. So we decided that we would start this podcast in the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network. I've been hosting a podcast called I'll Have Another for five years now where I interview professional runners and everyday runners. So if you're into that type of thing, definitely go check that one out. Uh, but yeah, this is this one's pretty new, and I'm so thankful for all of the people who have jumped in and joined us over here. If you ever have a suggestion or a topic you want to hear about, don't hesitate to email us, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com or my assistant Emma at sandyboyproductions.com. This episode today is a great one. It is episode 49, and my guest is Callie Warner. Callie is a family and behavioral therapist. She focuses on obsessive compulsive disorder, athletes in repetitive and ritualistic performance inhibiting behaviors, anxiety, mental health stigmas, and more. And she gives us some really thoughtful ways to evaluate and decide if our kids might need to see a behavioral therapist and ways to think about anxiety with our, our children, how to handle certain situations, I really felt supported when I talked to Callie and a lot of the things we talked about felt kind of personal in my own life. And so, I don't know, I just, I took a lot from this conversation and I hope that many of you will as well. If you know any parents or kids that struggle with anxiety, I highly recommend this episode um, that you might pass it along to them. Callie also recently wrote a book. It's called Anxious Annie. And you can get that on Amazon. All right. And if you enjoy this conversation with Callie, sharing it with friends and family and people on social media is a huge way to help us get the word out about this podcast and these important conversations. But leaving us a rating and review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts is also a huge help as well. So I really appreciate that. All right. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Callie. 
Well, today on Why Is Everyone Yelling, we have Callie Werner on the show. Welcome to the show, Callie. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. You know, this is fun, everybody listening. I don't know if if you're coming to the podcast, if you're new to the podcast, but um, if you don't know the origin of my podcasting story, this all started with a running podcast. And so um, I just started this parenting podcast last fall, but what is cool about this conversation is that Callie is kind of like putting her two worlds together. She just wrote a book and it combines her love for running and sport with her love for working with children through her profession. Can you tell us a little bit? We'll just start. We'll kick it off with the book. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, I have my book right here just in case we needed it to reference. But um, yeah, I started off as a distance runner and I ran in high school. I also played a bunch of other sports, um, but then my anxiety kind of started to get the best of me. I struggled with it from a very young age, um, like at the age of four, and I'll, I'll get a little bit more into what type of anxiety and go over the subtypes and answer any questions, but um, it wasn't until college that I got diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and really struggled at that point in my life, um, was kind of taking over my life. And then once I got appropriate evidence-based care, uh, it changed my life for the better. And I had so wished that I had gotten the treatment earlier um, as a, a child, because there were times in looking back where the OCD was very prevalent at such a young age. And so now that's what I, I hope to do, to be able to give these kiddos the chance to be preventative and get started earlier rather than later. So now you're a licensed therapist and you work with kids who are walking through what you were walking through. Right, right. I work with kids. I also work with adults. Um, I'm in my PhD program, so I'm seeing patients on the side as of right now. And this very recently, I I started doing it this summer. My my PhD started this summer. So um, trying to juggle a little bit of everything. But yeah, to see these kids get this part of their life back that their anxiety took away, especially from um, a sports realm, right? For me, when I was running, anxiety completely took away my love for running because I was doing all of these compulsions around competition. And and the more intense the race, the higher the stakes of the race, the higher the anxiety, the more compulsions. And so there's kiddos now, especially with, you know, social media, the amount of time that they're spending on their phone, the comparison, uh, body dysmorphia being a really big component of it as well. They're, they're not able to love things the way that they should. And so to help them find that love again is very fulfilling for me. So let's walk back to your story a little bit. Four years old is really young. And I'm sure that there are parents listening that might think they identify certain qualities in their kid, or I don't know if quality is probably not the right word, but certain things that their kids do. And they wonder, does my child have OCD? Is this something I should look into? So maybe start with your story and tell us what was going on with you. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll give a little bit of background of OCD and tie my story into it. Okay. So, uh, OCD has a bunch of different subtypes and I think most people think of it as this, everything has to be perfect or in, in a perfect order or clean. Like I, I'm so OCD because I have you know, all my books lined in an order or all my things on my desk are completely organized. And really there is a component of OCD that has to do with order and organization, but there's also seven other different subtypes of OCD that we don't 
necessarily talk about. Um, and they're equally as common as this cleanliness and orderly piece. And uh, some of them are considered taboo OCD thoughts. And so we don't really, we, we either feel ashamed to talk about them because they're so bizarre, or we think people will think we're crazy if we speak about them. But they are really just as common. And um, for me, as a young kid, I was struggling with the form of OCD known as scrupulosity, which is the religious-based fear um, component of OCD. It's where uh, you might fear if you do something bad or if you um, say something wrong that God will be mad at you, that you won't go to heaven, or depending on what the religious preference is, that something terrible could happen. And so when I was very little, uh, this is something I don't remember, something that my parents tell me, I would go around the house, tap my nose like this and um, say, sorry, God, sorry, God, sorry, God, uh, because I had this thought that what if I told a lie and didn't realize it, and then God's going to let my nose grow like Pinocchio. So one of the very early on OCD symptoms that I was struggling with, and most people haven't heard of scrupulosity. Um, so that, that's one of the subtypes. There's also sexual intrusive thoughts, harm intrusive thoughts, um, just right OCD. There's the, of course, contamination component. And then there's health anxiety um, as well. And so they're all treatable, but kids struggle with any of these different subtypes. And if you don't have the appropriate education on it, um, then you wouldn't really know what was going on. And so it started with, with that for me, and then it developed over time to uh, getting to this place where I, I was washing my hands a lot, fearing that I could contaminate my parents or my loved ones if I touched the wrong thing and then maybe touched their food. Or um, 90% of the time, I wouldn't even touch these things. There was just this what if in the back of my head that scared me. Um, because when these kiddos are struggling with anxiety, their fight or flight response is all out of whack. Uh, so it's activating at times that it shouldn't be. And so there's this part of their brain that recognizes, okay, this is irrational. I know I didn't touch my parents' food when, um, I touched the floor or whatever the fear is, but then they still struggle with the, the what if, um, and their anxiety goes through the roof and lets them think, okay, if I feel this way, then it must be true. Like that emotional reasoning component. So going back to my story, uh, I, would have it wax and wane over different times of my life. And when there was more stress, for example, as a kid, if, if you go through a big transition in life, like your parents move or family goes through a divorce, these symptoms, if you have the genetic makeup of OCD will kind of arise, um, because stressors tend to increase OCD symptoms. Um, so I would do things like repetitive behaviors over apologize. And, um, as I got into high school, it was a lot of like the, just right stuff around races. So I would have uh, to tie my shoes over and over again until it felt just right. Because if I didn't, there was this fear that um, either I won't win the race or that what if my loved one dies because this feeling is so strong, it convinces you of it. Um, and then I, I will say just to give all those that are listening a, a little bit of a better idea on the difference between OCD and perfectionism. Let's say there's an individual with OCD, they go to their fridge and they have everything lined up in the fridge with the labels facing me um, because they fear something terrible will happen if they don't. An individual with perfectionism just likes it that way. It makes them feel better to have it that way. So we often hear people that struggle with perfectionism say, oh, I'm so OCD, mm -hmm. when really it's a little bit different. 
I relate to a lot of this. Like I, as a child, would have to touch things a certain number of times or I thought something bad was going to happen. I would think, if I don't touch this a certain number of times, I'm going to get the stomach flu. Or if I don't touch this a certain number of times, I I might die. Like I literally thought like that. And I still struggle with it as an adult, but I can... I know what I'm doing now. Like I, when those thoughts come in my head, I know that they're not right. Like I know that that right. won't actually happen, but I still have to fight it. Like I'm like, Lindsay, you don't yeah. have to touch that. You don't have to do that. Now I still do touch right. both sides of the airplane before I get into any airplane. Um, <sighs> but yeah, and, and it's, it's, um, I eat things in certain numbers and things like that. I don't know. I don't, you know, and I, it all goes back to being a child. I remember opening and shutting mm-hmm. pantry doors. I have to open and shut this yeah. door 10 times before I go to bed. And right. I know, I don't know if my parents did the right or wrong thing. They didn't, they just didn't make a big deal about it. Um, mm-hmm. but now as an adult, as I walk through this and I, and I hear you talk about it and I've since kind of done my own research and investigation on it, I'm like, man, I wonder what my life would have looked like how things would have been different, how I might be different now had I had an intervention and right. I went to a behavior therapist or something mm-hmm. as a kid. Yeah, I, I would say it would save you a, a lot of pain and hardship that you kind of had to fend for yourself in those moments, unless your parents were trained um, OCD providers, which, you know, 99% of them aren't. So, uh, I, th- I think that preventative component would have saved a lot of pain because what happens with OCD a lot of the time is if you don't have appropriate treatment, yeah, there's times where you're going to be doing great when yeah. life's not stressful. Um, but kiddos, all individuals in life with the way that the world is are going to experience this stress and OCD loves to latch onto that. And mm. so um, the, the symptoms will most likely exasperate over time. And it would be so nice to have those tools in their toolboxes so that when this stressful life event comes up, they'll say, okay, I know what to do. Because if they can be preventative and start working on this, what we call exposure response prevention in the moment versus, you know, a year down the road where they're completely debilitated and OCD has gotten really sticky depending on severity. um, Yeah, it would save them a lot of hardship and and time. (laughs) What's the, what is the phrase you just said? What's it called? Exposure with response prevention. And what what is that? So it's the gold standard of treatment for OCD. It's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And to give an example, let's say somebody with OCD has contamination fears, like a, a kiddo might fear um, touching a doorknob because they could bring these germs and then they do this mental tracking where they'll say, I touched the doorknob, then I touched the desk, and then whoever touches these things are going to get sick. So in an exposure, we might have them do a lower level exposure first of Um, maybe just hovering their hands over the doorknob so that they can say, maybe some of these germs are jumping on my hands, maybe they're not, and I'm going to lean into that, and then we'll go cross-contaminate things in the house. And then the next time, maybe we'll touch one finger to the doorknob and then go cross-contaminate. And then little by little, they're able to get in control over this fear because what happens with OCD or most anxiety disorders is there's this part of your brain that says, I can't handle that uncertainty. And so we have to reteach the brain. You handle uncertainty on so many other realms of life. It's just this one thing that OCD has latched onto that you're not able to handle. So we slowly, exactly how it sounds, we expose them to whatever the fear is. 
their brain starts to register, oh, this really is OCD, nothing really bad is happening, and then we prevent that response. So the the compulsion or the response would have been for them to go wash their hands after touching the doorknob, and now we say we're not going to wash our hands and we're going to push forward a little bit at a time. Man, how do you – that's – it's so hard because it's like how do you strike a balance? I know everybody hates the word balance, but <laughs> um, because say you have multiple kids, right? And, you know, I have to really get on some of my kids to wash their hands after they use the bathroom. It's disgusting what Uh, happens, you know. So, like, if you have a kid that's struggling with that, but you're constantly getting on other your other kids about washing their hands and things like that because there are appropriate times to wash your hands. How do you make sure you're not overdoing it, you know? Well, even, yeah, even now with COVID, right? Right. People are told you need to wash your hands. And for someone with contamination, OCD fears, that's, the worst thing in the world. And so how can you find that balance? And to give an example with that, we've been saying, okay, we need to follow CDC guidelines, but we don't need to do anything above that. Right. And and we need to cross contaminate and and do all these exposures in this way. But I, for, for example, with OCD, like there might be an exposure that I'll have a kid do where we'll go into the office and we'll put a piece of candy on the ground and then we'll eat the candy. And their response would be, well, like, that's really gross. Anyone would think that's gross. Why, why would you have me do that? And I would say, you're right. I I do think it's kind of gross, but the difference for me, if I'm not struggling with contamination OCD is I don't have this debilitating anxiety or fear that something terrible will happen or I'll die or, you know, those types of things. I just think it's gross. And so we want to get you to that point where you just think it's gross. And after you're at that point, then we don't ever have to eat candy off the ground again. We just need to unlock that. And so I, I think, Kind of explaining it to siblings in that same way of, um, you know, just just telling them that it's good to wash your hands right now. And then little Johnny, maybe you, sh- you shouldn't be doing that extra component and just try. It is hard to keep that balance, but um, letting them know that going over and above and beyond is not healthy either. And I think for so many of us, as we were raised, we, you know, our parents would even tell us, oh, my gosh be so careful. Like you, you, if you trip and fall, you're going to bust your head open. And for a kid with OCD that struggles with that kind of fear, it, it really is something that they're going to latch onto. So I think parents have to be aware of what their kids fears are, and then be a little bit more careful with what they say around a kiddo with OCD, just because they can take that to the extreme for sure. And then be aware of the signs if that's happening. Hey friends, a quick break here to thank Prevenex for supporting this episode of the podcast. Prevenex has clinically effective supplements that promote longevity, performance, and everyday health. They have multivitamins, they have joint health supplements, delicious and nutritious protein powder that is vegan by the way, and also provides tons of vitamins and minerals with each serving of the protein powder. We make smoothies with it all the time over here in my house, packed with nutrients from the protein powder. And I also put in handfuls of spinach and kale and frozen fruit. Such a good little mini meal for the family. And they also have kids' vitamins. They're called Supervites. My kids love them. They are chewable vitamins formulated to deliver the right forms and optimal amounts of key nutrients to support your growing child but they also donate a bottle. So for every bottle you purchase, they donate a bottle to 
kids around the world who don't have access to the kind of nutrition that our kids have access to. So you all can save when you go to Prevenex.com. Use the code Lindsay15. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-5, and that will save you 15% off your order. And when you support a sponsor of this podcast, you are directly supporting my work here. So I thank you very much for that. All right. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Callie. I wonder your thoughts on including siblings in therapy. And I asked that from a personal place. My sister had a pretty intense eating disorder growing up, and I remember going to some of her meetings. Like I went a couple times with my mom um, and I don't, I don't know if it was just to make sure the family was exposed and we knew what was going on, but I'm curious, do you see siblings being brought in so they can understand? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the age and the involvement with the sibling in, in the kid's everyday life, right? So if it's um, you know, a nine-year-old and they have a, a three-year-old or four-year-old sister, that might not be as relevant as a seven or eight-year-old sister who plays together with Mm -hmm. them. They spend time together just because it's important for them to also have the psychoeducation on what's going on with their sibling um, and to be a good sense of support. I I would say anyone's immediate family or support system being educated on OCD and ways to respond is important because even that sibling could enable the OCD and make it worse. So like if, if an individual struggles with reassurance seeking, it's a compulsion of OCD So let's say they have this fear of hurting someone's feelings, um, which is a common OCD fear. They might ask their sibling, did I hurt your feelings? And the sibling every time says, no, you didn't hurt my feelings. When the the individual's at a point in treatment of trying to lean into the uncertainty. And so they're actually giving into that compulsion and enabling the OCD more. So it'd be nice for the, the sibling to have the education of, oh, instead of saying, no, you didn't hurt my feelings. Can you just remind your brother or sister to to keep working on that exposure that they're working on. So if someone listening thinks that their child might need to see someone for an issue around this, what are, what are things that would be red flags for you? Like you might need to go talk to someone. Yeah. So I would say a lot of us have OCD tendencies. Um, most of us probably do. There's this symptom checklist called the Y box that anyone can Google now and it'll show you the OCD symptoms. And I guarantee most of us would say, oh, yeah, I struggle with that and that. But when it meets true diagnostic criteria is when it's taking more than an hour out of your day. Okay. And so if this kiddo maybe double checks the light switch before they go to bed at night and that's all it ever is, then they're probably okay. But if you've noticed that they've been doing that for a while And now they're not just doing that, but they're double checking the doors too. And then maybe to make sure that you close the garage door, then that's a a sign that there could be some OCD there and we want to go ahead and catch it before it grows. Well, that, I think that can give a lot of parents a peace of mind and not that you can't have peace of mind regardless of the situation. I mean, I think that, you know, that's the point of getting treatment so you can have peace of mind, but to know that when your child does behaviors like that, like you said, flipping the light switch, to not automatically freak out about it. Right, <laughs> right. Anxious parents can sometimes uh, be a little bit more 
overly cautious, which in turn will probably make the kid anxious anyways. What are, do you talk to parents? Like when you are working with the patient, if you're working with a child, are you, you're working, I'm assuming side by side with the parent? Yes, definitely. Uh, I need to educate the parent. And then if, if there is an anxious parent, I will tell them too, because oftentimes when we do exposure therapy, we are triggering the kid on purpose, right? So that they can get the rest of their life back. We might need to trigger them in that moment by having them touch a doorknob that they think is contaminated. And I would say the majority of parents, when they first come in for therapy with their kid, they are engaging in some type of enabling behavior for Mm -hmm. the OCD, whether it be um, that they're giving the kid hand sanitizer every single time they need it, or they're going and checking all the locks for the kid before bed. um, And all of these things exasperate symptoms. And so the parent needs to know what to do a little bit at a time to take those enabling behaviors away. Because let's say they're doing so many different enabling behaviors. If they take them away all at once, this kid is going to have a severe panic attack and probably never want to go back to therapy again. And so we really have to a little bit at a time engage in this hierarchy process. I never had a panic attack until I was an adult and until actually after I had kids. And it always happens in the middle of the night. What defines a panic attack? So you probably, like, I think a lot of people actually probably have a panic attack, but they think of it as this very severe thing where you almost pass out and, and you can't breathe. And that's true. Those are symptoms of a panic attack, but just sweating and trembling, feeling of nauseousness, um, feeling like you're shaking, feeling like your heartbeat is kind of going through the roof, all of those can be signs of panic attacks too. And you don't have to experience them all at once. You can just experience one or two or three um, and and then have a developed panic attack. And everybody has symptoms of panic attacks differently. So somebody might feel like the room is spinning, whereas somebody else might get shortness of breath and somebody else breaks into a sweat and has a heart race. So these are all different things that can define it. And what would you say to a parent who is watching their child have a panic attack? I I think it's hard um, for the parent as well. And so they, if they are watching their child have a panic attack, if it's because of an exposure that they're doing, I would say we never want to do an exposure where a child is brought to a full on panic, right? We're doing these lower level exposures to bring the anxiety down before we move to the next one. So by the time they do that really hard exposure that, originally would have had them have a panic attack, it's not really that high of an exposure anymore because they've done all this lower level stuff. But if they see that their child is panicking, there's different emotion regulation techniques that they can do, uh, like going and getting some ice cubes and having the child hold the ice will bring their attention to, oh, there's ice in my hands. Oh, this is cold instead of whatever is making them ruminate and overthink that's causing this panic. Um, I'm trying to think of what else, you know, taking deep breaths, having them say, okay, deep breath in and, and deep breath out. That can be really helpful as well. You know, you're making me think I'm like, man, next time I have a moment, <sighs> it always happens in the middle of the night for me. And I think I'm dying. I don't, it's, it's a post kids thing with me, but yeah. I, I feel like I should walk outside and put my feet in the grass or something. Just what you're saying about the ice. I feel like, you know, I'm outside of the moment now. But if I'm thinking about the moment, if I get myself out of my bed and walk outside and like feel the air, I feel like that would help. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're grounding yourself, right? So if a parent asks their kid, Hey, what do you see right now? What colors do you see? What are you feeling? 
Um, what tastes are in your mouth? What are you hearing? These are all things that ground that child to be back in the present instead of when you're having a panic attack, you, attack you're so in your head and just overthinking everything. Thoughts are kind of racing. Um, so that, that's a perfect example of a grounding exercise that you could do. You didn't know I was going to have so many, so many personal ties to this, did you? <laughs> it's part of the, the job of being a therapist. Yeah. So. I, um, I'm like, Lindsay, don't go too far deep into this today because <laughs> you don't want to be crying on your interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We would do some grounding exercises then too. <laughs> let's, let's dive into um, the sports side of things. A lot of Perfect. kids get anxious with sports, and this is like very much your expertise. I mean, man, talk about runners getting anxious. If, if any listeners are crossed over from all have another here, I mean, I think even everyday runners like myself deal with overwhelming nerves and anxiety sure. for races that are just really not totally necessary. Right. And, you know, I, I've interviewed hundreds of people, and like what the – main message that I always take away is if you're not having fun, why are you still doing it? And if you're so anxious and you get so fearful on races and things like that, is it even worth it? So as parents, how can we support our kids? And, you know, when they're young, say our kids are starting to play baseball or or run or whatever the sport is when they're six, seven, eight, nine, maybe at the beginning it's all fun and games. But when it starts getting more serious and more competitive – these tendencies, these anxious tendencies show up. So what are some things we can do to kind of preventative care? That's what I'm looking for. What's some preventative care? So if a kiddo is starting a new sport and they actually are loving it right from the start, but like you said, we see the sport gets more competitive or that they're really good at what they're doing. And so then the pressure starts to build. Oftentimes I see parents say, well, we should just pull them out of the sport. This is way too much. This is causing too much stress for them. But the reality is if if this kid has talent um, and they're a hard worker, they're going to put that talent and hard work into something else and you won't see the problem go away. So it's just this continued cycle. And so we actually need to give this kid care. Um, So having them do some exposure work and uh, trying to help them to see and take the pressure off, right? They, they're already going to have so much pressure on themselves if, if they are a hard worker that we need to, to make sure that they know this is something that they are doing for fun, which is why I wrote Anxious Annie. And I hate giving this um, perception of everybody gets a trophy because that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but what I'm saying is we push so much uh, to, or some of us push so much to not do this, everyone gets a trophy technique where there are a lot of kids that are very driven and are going to be very hard on themselves. And so if, if we do that on top of what they're already doing, then it's going to blow up in their face and they need to be reminded that this is a fun sport, um, which ties into my personal story of, you know, I was already so hard on myself and, and engaged in a lot of pressure of needing to win a race or somebody will think this thing of me. And then of course it, it turned out to just be debilitating OCD symptoms as I got older and more success in running. And so I had to remind myself that overall in, in reality, I'm doing this because I love the sport and anxiety took away from my ability to do that, which was not the purpose that I intended for it to be. And so I had to take that pressure off of, you know what, if I decided to stop running today, people will still love me. I'm still Callie. I still have other things tied to my name. And so I think parents should, to first be preventative, not let that sport be that kid's whole identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Their identity needs to be tied into 
some other things too, right? Like the, their schoolwork, their friends, these are all important things to have. There's that balance word again, life balance. Um, and, but to remind the kid that like what it feels like in those moments when they love it, right? So, uh, I, I think whether you, your child struggles with anxiety or not telling them, wow, I, I love that you're you know so happy right in this moment right now, because later on down the lo- road, they might get anxious and you can say, Oh, remember that day, how great it felt to hit that home run or how great it felt to, to run across the finish line with such a good time, because those are the moments that can be motivators for them when anxiety does get too intense to go back to as a reminder of, oh yeah, that's why I do this. So when along your career, did you get freedom from this? And is it fully, is it full freedom or is this this something you're constantly working on? Yeah, great question. I, so when I was 21, that is when my OCD was the most severe. Uh, I got to a point where I was about to compete to try to qualify for nationals at Rice, uh, where I went to college. And my symptoms were so bad that I couldn't go into a a bathroom by myself. Um, I couldn't walk up a staircase due to intrusive thoughts to get to one of my classes. And um, my world got really, really small is how I like to explain it. And uh, over that Christmas break, I, I got into an ERP provider. It was a bit of a journey because there's um, a lot of people that don't know about OCD and can't recognize it right away. And so once I found that provider and we started working on exposure response prevention, I, I started to get some relief from these symptoms. And to answer the question of, am I fully free? Absolutely not. You know, I, I um, had the Olympic trials in 2020 was a bit of a wake up call for me. I was competing to just qualify for the trials. I, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to get top three to go to the Olympics, but it was just amazing to be there. And my anxiety, like you were saying earlier, just kind of went through the roof and I didn't know why. And I wanted to be enjoying this experience. And my OCD symptoms started to pick up again. I found myself like repeating the, the shoe tying, having to go double, triple check things when we were at the hotel, the days leading up to the race. And I was so frustrated with myself at that time because I was thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a therapist now. I can't be doing this stuff. Right. But what I tell my patients all the time is this process is not linear. Um, it, it is an up and down and there's going to be times where life is a little harder and you might notice some symptoms coming up, but that's when you have to jump in and, and do your exposure work that you learned in therapy. And so sure enough, you know, I, after the race started doing a little bit of exposure work and I got back to where I needed to be. Um, and it was just such a wake up call for me of needing to practice what I preach and reminding myself, Oh, I'm human too. And there's going to be times where symptoms come up or that thought is a little bit louder than I want it to be. And I've got to do, do my work again. But I will say the ERP gave me more freedom than I had had at any point in my life before I, I took that when the symptoms had started. ERP is, is that the exposure therapy? Yes. What is the R? Exposure response prevention. Oh, exposure response prevention. Yes. Preventing that compulsion. Okay. Um, okay. So tell us a little bit more about anxious Annie. Like when were you, when did you decide you wanted to write a book about this? I've always wanted to write a children's book. Uh, and then when I found out that I was going to be starting my PhD this summer, I think that really made me put the pedal to the metal because I knew there wouldn't be as much time and I wanted to do it before then. So, um, I, I mean, I always write little rhymes for friends invitations and, and do things like that. It's just something that I do for fun, but 
I also really wanted to tie the world of athletics with the world of mental health. Um, and so what a better way to do it than start with the children's book. Um, so that started this year and it's been incredible to, to have my running community and athletic community come together with the therapy community and, and mental health has been so cool. I've speak, spoken to so many people about it. Um, yeah. And it, it's just been a very neat process and very needed. I, I think it's been neat to see even individuals come to me and say, well, I don't have any kids, but the message, the overall message of anxious Annie is, is really good and hit home for me and was a reminder that they needed to. So um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that it's, it's bringing a lot of hope to kids and just giving the overall message that they're not alone and um, that they, they don't have to live life the way that anxiety wants them to live it. Hey everybody, as we head into cold and flu season, I don't know about you, but I don't want to deal with it. You can take some preventative measures by using elderberry syrup. And I have an awesome human who is part of this podcast network who has her own elderberry syrup. Her and her husband own a small farm and they source the highest quality ingredients for their products. What is elderberry? It is an immune modulating herb, which brings balance to the immune system, reducing stress, decreasing inflammation, and helping to prepare the body for cold and flu season naturally. If you do get sick, it's proven to help reduce severity and duration. It's also safe for kids to take. If your kids are under one, you can use their DIY kit that they have available on their website and use maple syrup or your favorite sweetener instead. The elderberry syrup that they have also has the addition of healing herbs like cinnamon, gingers, rose hips, which is huge for vitamin C and clove. Elderberry syrup helps you stay on top of your health all year long. Listen, my kids are coming home with colds left and right, and I've been downing this. I was downing the elderberry before the New York City Marathon, and I'm downing it after because they're coughing all over me. And knock on wood, I'm not sick yet, but we'll see. We'll see. Even if I do get sick, though, I am hoping that the elderberry syrup decreases the severity of it like it's proven to do. Um, This is a small family-owned business as well. I always feel like things made in small batches, you can bet that it's probably better quality than what you're buying massly produced at the grocery store. They put a lot of love into their products. You can go to greengrowers.farm and when you use the code SANDYBOY at your checkout, that'll get you free shipping. So that's greengrowers.farm and use the code SANDYBOY at checkout. And I, I got to tell you, it's actually really tasty. Like you could add it into your oatmeal or I just take a tablespoon and, and down it. But it's it's actually a really delicious tasting syrup. Um, again, that's greengrowers.farm. Use the code SANDYBOY and get yourself some free shipping. All right, friends, back to the show. Yeah, let's talk just a little bit about how OCD and anxiety are intertwined. Um, And maybe a kid is struggling with anxiety, but they don't have OCD. How do we identify that? Yeah, so so OCD is more of you have this obsessive thought and then you have to do something to immediately relieve the anxiety from that thought. So the general example is they touch that contaminated item and then they feel so anxious that they go wash their hands. 
Um, whereas general anxiety, you would see just this constant worry about different things. Like what if this happens and what if that happens? And you don't really see them engaging in any type of behavior to relieve that anxiety. Um, or panic, panic disorder, uh, is another one that you might just see an individual having panic attacks or, or fear that they could be dying if they're having a panic attack. Um, but they are, they all look different, but anxiety is definitely, like you said, intertwined with OCD. You just feel this constant heightened response, I guess is what I would say. I'm curious what you would suggest to parents who have, who have a child that struggles with anxiety and, you know, like I'm thinking if you send your kids to school, how you communicate to the teacher so that the authorities, anybody that's in charge of your kid when you're not in their presence can be armed with the right information if they do have a panic attack. Yeah. Well, I, even from an OCD perspective right now, um, I will call teachers as a therapist and give them a little bit of education. Uh, I would say that parents often want maybe us to say, okay, well make sure that, you know, if they are late to class or if um, this happens because of their anxiety that they won't get counted tardy or that, um, you know, there's just this understanding. And I, I think it's important for a therapist to say that this is a temporary, um, maybe a response that we're going to do for this child until they get better, because we want to work, have them work toward being able to function in, in the real world in the long term after they've done treatment. And so, uh, if, if a parent can let the teacher know, you know, they're experiencing some panic, but they're working on it in therapy. And we would like for this to be a, um, like a, a little piece to help them until they've worked on it. And then we take it away slowly. So I've done that a lot of times with OCD for kids because where if, if we give them some type of accommodation, um, we don't want to keep it there forever, right? Because then that's going to be enabling the OCD behavior. But we a little out of time want to take it away just like a parent that might be engaging in a lot of enabling behaviors. You know, I was just thinking about this because my kids do really good at school. I don't have, oh gosh, well, I will <laughs> say, what was it? When my second child, he was going to pre-K full-time. My husband was traveling this week. He just wouldn't go into class. He had so much anxiety about it. We're all crying Aww. on the floor. It was awful. So I should say, I have had my very hard drop-offs. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you forget about those things. You get so far removed, though, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I walked through that. Um, But just the other day, I was taking my son to soccer, and we forgot his ball at home and he, it was his first day. We just moved to a new town. It was his mm. first day on this new team. And I was like, it's okay. Don't worry about your ball. The coach will be fine with it. Like it's okay. He had so much anxiety over not having his ball and the fear that like he was going to get in trouble or I don't know, whatever it was, he would not go out on that field. And in the moment I was so annoyed and mad. Because I'm like, you're nine years old. You're fine. You've been playing soccer for three years. Like, it's not a big deal that you don't have your ball. And he fin I finally got him to go. I actually just walked away. But now looking back, as we're talking about it and having this conversation, I'm like, ah, I wish I would have had a little more grace with him because I'm thinking through what he was actually probably processing. And he was having, like, severe anxiety that he forgot his ball. But to me, I was like, right, it's not a big deal. Right. It's just a ball. But he really was struggling. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to have compassion for yourself too, right? Like you, you can't, hindsight's twenty twenty, right. and you can't know what you don't know. But um, yeah, I, I mean, for that kid in that moment, you can give them all of the rationale, but what what's really happening right there is their fight or flight response is out of whack, right? And so you can tell them all of these things, but the feeling is what's overcoming for them. So if you can focus on the feeling when you talk to them, that's actually going to help a lot more than Hey, like, like, don't worry. Your coach isn't going to be mad. Um, this stuff happens, but instead just saying, Oh yeah, you, you must be feeling really anxious right now and putting words to it can help a lot. Um, but, but you know, like we've, we've gone through this component before you're doing great. Like this is just that fight or flight response getting out of whack. Kids are very intelligent. And so if you tell them and teach them what's happening, um, and they can put words to it, it's going to help them process through it a lot better. Wow, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thanks for sharing. I know that's a vulnerable place to talk about what feels like, oh, I should have done this. It is. It's hard. And and it happens often. I mean, that happens in my life all the time. I go back and I'm like, oh, I was getting so frustrated. And, you know, it's like it is an excuse. But a lot of times I have, you know, I have four kids. So a lot of times like Somebody else needs something in the moment or whatever. And I mean, pulled in all these different directions. But then I look back and I'm like, ah, he was probably really anxious or, you know, whatever. And nobody's going to do this perfectly. But um, it's really helpful for me to think through it in that way. Right, right. I was just going to say one of my favorite quotes that I constantly reminded myself too is someone told me this a long time ago, but be kind to your past self. Mm -hmm. It was doing the best you could with what you had um, at the time. So it's, it rings so true, right? Like your past self only knew these certain things. Now that you've had an OCD anxiety talk, of course you would respond differently. I would hope you would, um, because, or not just you, but anyone, right? Because these are things that I would, I went to school for, for many years to learn how to do. And I never would have known these things if I didn't study them and research them. And that's, that's why I hope that people get takeaways from it, but you, you couldn't have known there's no possible way. So you have to remind yourself of that too. Yeah, I'm actually now I'm like, I'm looking forward to like actually talking to him about that particular instance. Like I want to bring it up and just be like, you know what? Now that I think through that, this is probably what was going on. And yeah, and I, I, he, he, he's my oldest. Those kinds of situations tend to happen more often with him. And I think he has some of the anxiety things that I have going Mm -hmm. on. I think that that might have been passed down to him. Um, more so than my other kids so far from what I see. And right. so it's always interesting too because my husband does not struggle with anxiety. He is the most even keeled, just like <sighs> take it as it comes. Nothing's wrong until it's actually wrong kind of person. Right. And yeah, I can relate. <laughs> daily, I'm like, oh, how do you think like that? Like I want that freedom. So when those things happen with our one child that I think struggles with it more than the others, I sympathize a lot more because I right. I'm, I tell him, I'm like, I felt this. Like, I know what he's feeling right now. And it's it almost feels like you can't repair it in the moment. Right, right. I, I feel your pain on that. My husband's the same way. And uh, I had to tell myself a lot of times when I, I would catch myself wishing, like, I wish I had that mentality. I wish I couldn't get anxious about this. But like, if that were the case, how could I do the work that I do, right? There's no way. So if that were the case, how could you help your son yeah. with what what he's experiencing and, and help him walk through it? For him to hear that this is something that 
you relate to and that you've walked through that journey, I think will be so powerful for him to know that he's not alone in this because oftentimes kids feel like I'm so alone. This isn't something that other people experience. What's wrong with me when the reality is no tons of people are experiencing that. And if you can feel like you're less alone, um, that's one going to make you motivated to, to get help because you know that it's worked for other people. Um, but then two, just, just make you feel better overall. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I was like, as you were talking, I was like, hold it back. You're doing okay. Let's shift. I mean, it's just, it's really powerful. I, and you know, I grew up with parents that didn't struggle with anxiety and my mom is like the furthest thing. He, she's more like my husband. So I don't think she really ever understood right. what I was walking through. She, she was a great supporter and she is a great supporter and she always wants to help. But, um, I do think that's really powerful when you're close to someone who has walked through those fires. Right. Well, and, and not only do we have this voice now to be able to speak about these things, but our parents' generations were very different with mental health than, than we are, right? We are able to speak about it like, and I mean, we still have a long way to go with it, but like, this is a common thing. Like, you're not alone on this journey, whereas our parents' mentality was more don't tell anybody. Like, if you're yeah. struggling, you know, zip it up and, and keep moving forward. So times are changing, which is such a good thing. I was just listening to Kelly Corgan's podcast and she's doing a series on parenting and like how it's different now than it was, you know, when our parents were parenting, when our grandparents were parenting. And one of the things she said was back in the day, people just like didn't, didn't overthink things. And I'm not saying we're overthinking it, we're addressing it and acknowledging right. it and getting help for it. But people just rolled up their sleeves. They had to work. They had to do, the, you know, they're just, they Grind didn't make time for it. Right, right. Yeah, and, and it was perceived as this big weakness, yeah. right? Where as now, no, there's a chemical imbalance in the brain that you could not have controlled even if you wanted to. And, you know, I, I hear so many individuals also say, well, uh, like if I just would be stronger, if I would just snap out of it, my response is always, you absolutely would, right? If you could choose not to have this, of course you would choose that. But the reality is like you didn't make the choice, but wow, how powerful for you to be able to make the choice to work on it. Because a lot of people don't either because they don't have the insight or they're afraid of what it might mean if other people find out or it shows that they're vulnerable. But yeah, I think in reality, it just shows how strong they are for being brave enough to work on it. You know, I think one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is just with our kids actually putting words to things and, and talking it through. I just interviewed someone about talking to your kids about sex and <laughs> very similar. Put words right. to it. Right. You know, just, just, it is what it is and, and just be open about it. And I think that that's the other takeaway that I'm getting from this is like, you know, acknowledging what's happening when it's happening. I'm talking about the soccer situation with my son instead of getting frustrated and just pushing it away. For sure. And, and yeah, you're right. If we don't talk about it, it's perceived as this forbidden thing, right? Whether it be sex or whether it be emotions that you don't feel like others are experiencing. But when we put words to it, we're normalizing it. And that also not only makes the kiddo feel better, but it's also going to create a stronger relationship between you and your child. So that you can be buddies when you're 50, when <laughs> they're, right. when they're 50 and you're 75 or 80. That was another takeaway from the Kelly Corgan podcast. She was interviewing <laughs> someone and he was saying like, 
man, I'm 45 and we hang out with my parents all the time and we're friends and it's fun Mm -hmm. and it's a different relationship, you know, when you're an adult. Right. Right. Yeah. And as they get older, they'll, they'll learn to appreciate it that you're able to help them express these difficult parts of life. They're unavoidable. Yeah. And I think that communication when they're little, that it go, it's going to go so far when they're adults. And I'm thinking that now is, you know, I have adult parents, I'm an adult and I have kids and it's just, yeah, it's, it's wild. Um, okay. Let's wrap up with some end of the podcast questions here. This has been wonderful. Perfect. Well, yeah, I've, I've had so much fun. I mean, this is the stuff that I'm most passionate about it. So I could talk about it all day. (laughs) It's flown by. What is something professionally or personally that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Professionally, uh, I would love to write a book for coaches and athletes to utilize as a tool for the things to say and just to normalize mental health overall. I mean, with everything that's happened in the Olympics, we most recently with people speaking up about mental health, I think this is one more tool, like a coach's survival guide to to help them see, oh, this is how I should respond to athletes. I should not treat all athletes one specific way um, and personalize it for each one. So yeah, that would be my professional response, personal response. Um, I would love to run an elite Spartan race at some Ooh, point in my life. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've done one and it was a blast. So I'll put more on the books at some point. Is it so hard? It's actually, I mean, I've, I've run a few marathons. This Spartan race thing is the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? What's <laughs> so. the, um, what's the distance and give us like the rundown. Yeah. So it's honestly like an adult playground. There's a ton of different obstacles and they have different distances. So they have the, the sprint, the ultra, uh, and I forget a few others, but they're all different distances. And I did, um, a 10 K one. So 6.2 miles. And I, I want to say, I'm not really sure how many obstacles it felt like there were 30 to 50 somewhere okay. around there, but, uh, it's intense, but endurance running can help you with that. So there were a lot of burpees I had to do. If you don't do certain Ugh. obstacles, you do punishment burpees. But the running, the endurance within me kind of helped me build up or make up for that. So, Like yeah, if you can't make Spartans. it over an obstacle or something, then you have to do the burpees? Yes. If you can't make it over an obstacle, you have to do the like 30 burpees. It's a lot. Yeah. And you have to <laughs> actually like. There were like 10 that I couldn't do. Yeah. It's so hard. I'm reading a book with my kids about. Um, it's I don't even know what the book is, but I, we just checked it out of the library. Um, and it's a, it's a book for my oldest, really. He's nine and I'm reading it out loud to them. He could read it, but he doesn't like to read. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll just read it. At least that's something. But it's about these kids that are trying to try out for a reality ninja warrior show. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) And my kids love watching American Ninja Warrior. So anyway, Spartan Race kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, a little bit different, but also kind of the same. Yeah, yeah. Both um, intense. Fun. Okay. What's the best, most recent book you've read? I'm currently still reading it, but it's called What Happened to You by Bruce Perry. A phenomenal book. And I think Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey actually partnered in making this book. And it talks about trauma, a lot of stories on how it affects kids. Uh, it's also the same individual who wrote The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Oh, so very, wow. yeah, very, very good. It's, it's just about different trauma experiences and why we should be saying what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you um, when mm. when something's going on. So very powerful book. I also 
while I was talking to you about kids putting, putting words into emotion or putting emotion into words, there's another book that I just thought of called The Wholehearted Child. And every parent should read it. It's oh. phenomenal. And I'm, have you heard of it? No, but I'm going to order it right now when we get off the call. It talks about what goes on in the brain when they're struggling or the whole brain's child. Sorry, not wholehearted child. Oh, I have heard um, of this. I have, but I have not read it. It's so, so good by Daniel Siegel is who wrote it. So everyone purchased that. It, it tells you a lot about how to speak to your kid when they're struggling with anxiety. I'm going to be really honest and vulnerable right now. I have said what is wrong with you to my kids. And every time I say it, I, I like feel so gross. And I know as it spills out of my mouth that I shouldn't be saying it, but it's what I feel in that moment. And I, I talk, I've talked to my closest friends about it. Now I'm telling thousands of people on, on this podcast, <laughs> but like I, I've said that. So as you were saying that, I was like, oh, there's so much shame. But I'm remembering what you also said, and that is Good. to be kind to your past self. Right, right. I, I guarantee you most parents um, that have kids that are over, you know, at, at a point where they can at least talk yeah. have said, what is wrong with you? So, yes, give yourself grace there. And and this is more speaking from at least the book from yeah. really traumatic experiences um, and yeah, if you asked your kids at the same time, what happened to you? They might be like, what do you mean? <laughs> Maybe I should replace it though. And then that'll at least help me. I mean, it's one of those things where like, I know as I'm saying it, I shouldn't say it and I still say it. And right. I, I've very much like, I don't say it as much as I used to, but you feel it in the moment and you're just like, ah, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? You know? Right. Um, right. I'm trying really hard not to say that. And it's almost embarrassing to admit that I have to try not to say that. <laughs> You're human. Just yeah. remind yourself of that regularly. Um, do you have a, I know anxious Annie, we're recommending everybody check out anxious Annie. That is Callie's book. Do you have any other kids books you recommend? Uh, other children's books that I can think of. I don't, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but the International OCD Foundation has a website uh, tab solely for kids, and there's a ton of books on mental health that they recommend. Um, so it's the largest OCD foundation in the U.S., and they put on a big conference, but it's a great resource. Also, you were saying peace of mind earlier. The Peace of Mind uh, Foundation is also incredible, and they have tons of resources for kids on there too. So peaceofmind.com, I think is that website to check out. If you're, if those that are listening think that maybe they've caught on to something that I've said about their kid possibly struggling with OCD, there's such great content on what to look for, um, support for family members, how to support your loved one with OCD. So check that one out too. I love that. Peace of mind. I feel like I want to get that like on a, on something on my wall or something. Just yeah, the word yeah, peace. In their, it's, yeah, it's P-E-A-C-E of mine. So the, it is phenomenal. My um, The boss of my program that I work at, McLean in Houston, she started the foundation. She has a really cool story too. Okay. I just love the word peace. I sing to my kids, peace like a river every night. And I, and I tell them, oh. I say, think peace like a river, love like an ocean, joy like a fountain. I got to get that on a wall somewhere. 
Yeah, you do. That's beautiful. I'm surprised you haven't already. I know. That, that's something that they're going to take away with them in the long term, not though, not when you say oh. what's wrong with you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. And I always try to like, you know, usually we sing it, but sometimes I try to say like, think about it. Because sometimes, you know, some of them think very literally about certain things. Some sure. don't pay attention. Um, but my sixth Julie's like, what, why are you saying, why is it like a river? And I'm like, picture yourself standing by a river and like, just like it trickling on the rocks and yeah. like how that feels. And okay, we're getting that stenciled somewhere. <laughs> there you go. I have to see a picture. You'll have to send it to me. <laughs> I will. I love it. I'm, I'm holding myself to it. <laughs> okay, perfect. Callie, what is your last message to leave with our audience today? So I actually wrote one down and this was a quote that I came up with last night and it's life is too short to let stress and routine take the passion out of something you were once passionate about. Don't let it steal, steal your spark. Thank you. This was yeah. so good. I loved it. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to get some personal takeaways. From yeah, it too. I got some and, therapy. Um, yeah. And, and you know what? The reason your podcast is just so incredible is because you're human on it. And people can relate to humanism, not not the unidealistic thing that we can't reach of perfectionism. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Callie. Of course. All right, friends, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Callie, for coming on the show. You all can find Callie on social media. She is Callie, C-A-L-I, Rope Werner on Instagram. Don't forget to check out her book, Anxious Annie. You can find me personally on Instagram. I am lindsayhine 626 and this podcast is on Instagram as well. Why is everyone yelling? Don't forget to check out our wonderful sponsor, Prevenex. If you're looking for vitamins and supplements and protein powder for your family, this is the place to go, Prevenex.com. Use the code Lindsay15 for 15% off your order. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. Again, send us an email if you have guest suggestions or topics you want to hear about. Lindsay at SandyBoyProductions.com or Emma at SandyBoyProductions.com. This episode was edited by Emma Benner. Thank you so much, Emma. All right. Have a great week and we will see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling? 